Pray with me. God and Father, you are not a distant Father, silent and absent from our lives, but you are the God who speaks, the God who comes as one of us in Jesus Christ and who dwells in our midst in your spirit. I pray that we might now be attentive as you speak to us. Be with all of us sinners as we hear your word. Be with me a sinner as I preach it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It's good to be with all of you this morning. I am um, Pastor Eric. I'm still, I guess, the new pastor here. I've joked that it'll be a while. I don't know quite at what point I can stop saying I'm new. It'll probably be a few years at least. But um, it's good to be with you. We've been preaching through the book of Colossians. And this morning, as we come to this text, I was thinking... um, So I've never been great at sports, I should say. Um, Don't look so surprised. Well, one of you can look surprised, I guess. But but I was a runner in high school, meaning that I ran track. (laughs) I guess I should clarify that too, not other kinds of running. Um, But but one of the things in track that I remember being told by a coach was the importance of visualization. Visualization, which is to say that before you do an exercise or do some event, He said what you should do is picture yourself doing it, doing it right, perfectly. Which meant, you know, you'd watch people that could do it well, and then you'd imagine yourself kind of doing that thing. And I've heard other people talk about that in other sports too. Like, if you golf, I know you're supposed to, before you, you know, swing and hit the ball, you're supposed to visualize yourself going through the motion of this golf swing. That motion, I know, shows that I don't golf at all. Um, (laughs) You know, if you're, um, before you take that free throw, you're supposed to mentally rehearse the ball, leaving your fingertips and going through the net. And at the time, my main thought was, great, that is one thing about sports that I can do well, which is imagine it. Um, but, <laughs> but that practice is actually important, people who, um, who do it have told me. Because without visualization, you don't get where you need to go. You just... You can practice and practice, but you're just practicing the same wrong habits over and over. You can kind of hone and perfect little parts of of the action, but without combining them into a whole, they don't flow together in the way that they're supposed to. You need to visualize if you're going to be able to end up learning how to do these things in sports. And I think that that's kind of what Paul is doing in chapter 3 of Colossians 2. He's trying to get the Colossians to visualize the kind of sweep and action of the Christian life. There's these false teachers that he's been challenging, and they've given people a wrong picture. And so rather than dealing with kind of a few specific issues, Paul responds by trying to paint the right picture of the Christian life. His overarching image has been that of death and resurrection, of dying to some things and then living into others. Last week we talked about that dying the dying to sin, killing it at its root. But that's only half the picture. You can die to all the sins in the world, but you still have to ask, now what? How, as a Christian, am I supposed to live? And in our passage today, Paul outlines the answer to that question. In verse 12, he tells us what we are. We are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. We are, by Christ's work, this beloved and righteous and set-apart people, and Paul spends the next few verses telling us how this people should then live. And I think that that's something we need. There are all kinds of bad pictures around us of what Christianity and the church should look like. Some of those pictures are painted by the world, 
right? If you read almost any novel or television show, you kind of notice that there aren't a lot of Christians in them that aren't hypocritical or shrill or repressed. Um, their churches are portrayed as nests of backbiting gossip or kind of scary medieval oppression. And sadly, many of those pictures are also painted for us by Christians, right? What, what is a Christian supposed to look like? It is, is it the guy with the $50,000 suit and the million-dollar smile on the cover of those bestsellers? Is it the, the red-faced guy with saliva kind of spraying, you know, on cable news? Churches can be places full of backbiting and gossip and oppression. And so we need, before we start to walk out Christianity, just the right picture in our heads of what it's supposed to look like. I don't have any fancy points for us this morning as we walk through this picture Paul points. Basically, he just spends the first three verses of our text picturing what the Christian life should look like, and then the last three verses of our text picturing what the Christian community, the church, should look like. The Christian life, the Christian community. Let's just walk through those in turn. So first, Paul paints this picture of the Christian life. He starts by describing some of the key Christian virtues in verse 12. There were these sinless, if you remember from last week that he had, that he was discussing that we're supposed to put to death. And now he gives us this list of five virtues that we're supposed to put on. First, he calls us to put on compassion. Compassion means having a tender heart for people. It means weeping for their hurts and aching for their needs. It means seeing people as people with stories and wounds and dreams rather than just as kind of objects that get in your way. And kindness which really means just being good to people, doing good things for them. It's crazy how complicated we can make it. Paul's idea is that one of the core components is just be kind to people. And then Paul calls us to humility. So if those first two are about how we act towards other people, this is about how we act towards and think about ourselves. That humility means looking at God and recognizing that he's infinitely greater than us and looking at others and recognizing that each of them is equally worthy as us. And so, um, keeping ourselves in our place, not thinking better of ourselves than we ought to, not thinking that we're more important than we are, and added to those is gentleness. We're to be careful with people. My wife likes to refer to this as treating people like fine china. In particular, as we challenge or speak to others the truths of Christianity, gentleness is meant to define the tenor of that challenge. That we aren't supposed to be the yelling heads trying to shout people into line. Instead, we're supposed to be like a loving parent who kneels down and embraces their child as they speaks to them. And patience. Because people don't always display those virtues. And seeing them develop takes a really long time. So even as we seek to grow in these ways and pray others grow in them, we don't expect ourselves or others to change overnight. We have patience to walk with people for the long haul. And the thing about all of those virtues together is that they are relational virtues. They're relational virtues, right? They're not just describing our private hearts, but rather how we treat and think about and feel about the people around us. And obviously there are a ton of applications for those virtues, right? When you summarize them like that, it can feel a little overwhelming because you could spend a sermon unpacking each one. Um, And none of us is even close to fully realizing them. Right? I'm certainly not. When I hear that list, I just am left thinking, man, I'm so prideful and so often not patient or gentle with people. Um, but rather than walk through those in detail, I just want us to think about um, what it would look like to actually get there. 
right? What would that look like in our hearts, right? As far short of that as we fall, just imagine with me for a moment what a person who is these things would be like. They would be tender-hearted. You could share your dreams and fears with them without fear, and, and they would bleed compassion for you, and they would be constantly surprising you with little kindnesses and considerations and unexpected encouragement or gift or act of service, and they would be humble, not humble in that way that really shouts, like, look how humble I am, but they just wouldn't think much about themselves or talk much about themselves. They'd be interested in you. They'd probably be great in- listeners. They'd be gentle and patient, never short with you, never cynical or cruel or rolling their eyes in exasperation. Wouldn't you want to be with that person? I mean, wouldn't you in some ways walk into the, the teeth of hell for a person like that? I mean, I can't help thinking that that is what Jesus was like, that that's part of what drew people to him, the reason so many followed him, especially so many broken and hurting people. And that's what Paul wants us to picture and start to become. His language describing what we're called to do is to, um, to put on those things, like clothing, to clothe yourselves in these things, which I kind of love because it means that as we picture that, it doesn't mean that we just have to arrive there today, but rather it's a call to imagine what that sort of life is and then start to, each day and in each moment, in each interaction, try to clothe ourselves in those virtues as well. So we have that list of virtues. And then in verse 13, Paul gives us this summary of how those virtues work themselves out in practice. He says, bear with each other, which is the nicest possible translation. The, the word in Greek means to endure, and it can refer to people or to things like suffering or persecution, right? So, which I love because it's just unflinchingly realistic. Paul's saying, if you have to, you know, people can be hard, learn to endure them like you would suffering <laughs> rather than trying to fix them or get rid of them, or give up on them. And then he says to forgive one another, that if anybody has any issue with his brother, his job is to forgive. And not just half-heartedly, but Paul says, as the Lord forgave you. Scripture constantly uses that analogy of God's forgiveness for what we're called to. And have you ever really thought about that, right? God forgives completely. He covers our sins so that they're not seen or remembered anymore. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our sin for us. So we are to forgive in that same way, perfectly and completely and forever. So we're practicing relational virtue and doing that in a context of constant forgiveness. We're to be constantly forgiving. Which, if, I, if I'm honest, is a huge challenge for me, right? There are so many things that I can do when someone does something wrong to me. I can get ticked off, right? I can get mad and kind of rage against them. Or I can get bitter, storing it up in my heart and slowly growing to hate that person. Or I can try to just stuff it and try to avoid it, right? But as a consequence, kind of just avoid the person talking to them or dealing with them. Or I can talk to other people about it and gossip and complain, and Paul's saying that all of those responses are wrong. Instead, we're really only given two options when somebody wrongs us by the Bible. First, we can forgive them in the sense of just letting it go, right? Just forgive it in our hearts, bear with it, and let it go. And we should always probably start by trying to do that when somebody wrongs us. 
Um, but that's hard, okay? That's not the same thing as just trying to stuff it. That means that there's this disciplined approach to my heart when I think about the wrong that somebody did me, where I say to myself, no, when I'm tempted to be bitter or angry or bring that up, no, that's forgiven, I'm letting it go. I'm not going to call it to mind anymore. So that's the first option, to just let it go. Sometimes that's not going to cut it, right? Some sins are too big or strike too deep to just let go. That doesn't let us off the hook, though. Rather, at that point, we have the second option of forgiveness, which is to seek reconciliation with the person. We seek to talk about those issues, work through the process of forgiveness with the other person. Which, if if the first option can be hard, that can sound impossible, right? (laughs) But it's what we're called to do, to go to the person and communicate our hurt and acknowledge that we should forgive them but are struggling to and listen to what they say and seek to grow together into forgiveness. Now look, that reconciliation, that second thing, that is a process. And, um, and it requires two people to make it work, unlike the first thing. Um, and there are re- relationships that you can try to find reconciliation in and the other person isn't there. And that's not your fault, right? As Romans 12.18 reminds us, as much as it demands on you, be at peace with all men as much as it depends on you. So there are people who are abusive or toxic in the world and who we're never going to be able to finish that process with. But even that doesn't free us from the call to forgive. We don't get to nurse our bitterness and resentment, even at those people when we seek reconciliation and it fails. We're still called, as much as we can, to seek to forgive. All of which is hard and convicting, But again, just imagine how the world would look if we did that, right? I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if spouses fought in the world and they never brought up the past? (laughs) Can you imagine a world where um, where coworkers were angry with each other and so they went and had a conversation about it instead of talking to everybody else? Can you imagine a church where someone could go to someone else and say, this thing hurt me, and then the other person says, I forgive you, or I mean, I'm sorry, And the first person says, I forgive you, and everybody really meant it? Again, even though we're not there, the picture of that world is a beautiful thing. Paul summarizes all of this. The virtues we're to put on and are called to forgive as love. Over all these virtues put on love, verse 14 says. We are to be ultimately driven by love, which isn't just a trite saying. Right? We use it like that in our world. The, All you need is love that the Beatles used to, to sing to us. Um, you know, the true love, it says on those disgusting little candy hearts that taste like chalk and we give each other at Valentine's Day. Um, but by love, Paul doesn't just mean this cliche throwaway thing. Rather, he means something specific that somehow unites all of these things that we've been talking together into a whole. Love in Scripture... He says, binds these things together in perfect unity. So love means moving towards and lifting up the other person in the Bible. Moving towards them and lifting them up. Moving towards them in relationship, in presence, in tenderness and appreciation, and lifting them up in the sense of thinking highly of them, and even more in treating them highly, more highly than yourself. Love is fixing your affection on someone and seeking their good. Which can all sound theoretical, But but let me try to give a practical example of why we need that overarching picture of love, right? So we can sometimes treat love in our world as a call to never, say, challenge or disagree with someone, 
right? Which is not biblical. Paul clearly loves the Colossians, and he spends this whole book challenging them in many ways, trying to correct them, and because he loves them, and he recognizes that these false ways they've been taught are damaging. At the same time, though, that kind of disagreement or challenge is only love when it's actually for the other person's good, right? There are plenty of people who are really just self-vindicating when they try to bring out that challenge. They just want to be right or feel more superior or correct. And so while love can involve challenge, it can also involve refraining from challenge. It says both that we should speak sometimes and how we should speak, and that we should not speak sometimes and instead listen and display patience. And the question is, well, how, what do we do with those things? And the key is that Christianity rests not on the challenging or the not challenging, but on the seeking to love. Love is the central question. It's what we should be thinking and praying about when we confront a person. What is the best way to love this particular person in this particular moment? Which means that there's no easy, absolute answer, right? Love isn't a program or method. It's not a position of commitment, um, or rather it is a position of commitment to another person's good. So it's a thing that gives the other virtues their direction. A direction towards and for people a life for others, life lived not for ourselves, but for the world and the people in it. The question we come back to over and over is whether what we're doing is doing that, loving. It's a litmus test for our activities as a Christian. And it's the centerpiece of part of how Paul's calling these people to picture the Christian life as a life of love. So Paul gives this this picture to visualize the Christian life. We're to be a people of relational virtue, forgiving each other, and ultimately driven by love, which is a beautiful picture, like we said. But he doesn't leave us there. There's another picture that Paul also wants to give to the Colossians, and it's related, but it's a picture of the Christian community, the church. He describes how the church should look as well. So first, Paul tells us in verse 15 that we should be a people, together as a community, a people of peace. We are called to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Since as members of one body, we were called to peace. And there's really three kind of elements that you have to hold in tension when you recognize that, right? First of all, Paul is calling the Colossians to the peace of Christ. So there's a specific kind of peace. It's not just a general getting along, but something that centers on the message of Christ and on the gospel and on communicating and believing that. In addition... It's Christ's peace together in our community. It's one body. We are one body, Paul says. That image is central to the way that Paul pictures our unity, that we're all linked together the way that the organs of a body are linked together. So that requires us to be at peace together because, I mean, you think about a body, right? A body at war with itself, that's not a healthy thing. That's, you know, if parts of your body are fighting against other parts of your body, that can kill you. So it's the peace of Christ. It's peace in this community And it's peace in our hearts. We're to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Which in part is to say that it starts with going back to Jesus rather than just seeking peace. Going back to that peace of Christ and having it rule in us. But more than that, it's also to say that peace isn't just something that's meant to be external, but should spring from something inside of us. Our hearts should be ruled by Christ in a way that causes us to seek peace with the people around us. So this call to peace in our hearts, I think, is crucial. We can often think of peace in the body as simply avoiding conflict, acting like everything is cool. 
But Paul's call runs much deeper than that. Ken Sandy, in his helpful Peacemaker book and materials, he draws a distinction between peacemaking, which is what we're called to do to really be at peace with each other, and two things, two wrong responses. One of those is, I think, what we think of. He calls it peace-breaking, right? Being divisive, being mean to people, getting angry at people. And obviously that's a bad thing and breaks peace. But the other thing he says that destroys true peace is peace-faking, trying to keep up the appearance of harmony while inwardly we're angry and hurt and distant. And both of those behaviors undercut the biblical call to peace. Obviously, peace-breaking is a problem, and it should challenge us if we're going to be short-tempered or angry or mean to our fellow Christians, but so is peace-faking. The image Paul uses is that we are one body, and that means more than just that the organs aren't actively trying to kill each other. It means that the organs are actually knit together and working together in intimate harmony. And again, you could spend a whole sermon digging through the details of that, and maybe we will sometime. But for now, just picture what that church of real peace would look like, right? That's what I think Paul wants us to have in our head. We're called to be a people of peace. And he then digs down into the sort of life together that does this, both that grows us in our peace and that also creates the love and forgiveness and virtue that we discussed earlier. He says we're to be a people of peace shaped by word and worship. So first, the word, in verse 16, he says to let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, which means that we need to return constantly to God's word and especially the gospel, the message of Christ. We need to let it soak down into our hearts and into our community. I love the image of dwelling among us that Paul uses in this text, that that the word is supposed to set up shop, put down roots, move into our neighborhood. And it's a dwelling richly, that by having the word of God in our midst, somehow blessing wells up and virtue and fruit starts to form. And how do we let the word dwell in us that way? First, by teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. So the message of Christ dwells in our midst as we share it with each other. And notice that that involves everyone, right? It's not passive. It's not as you are taught and admonished, but rather that it's that each of us is being a part of this teaching and admonishing. And the word also dwells in our midst as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with gratitude in our hearts. So we share the word together, but we also share together in worship. Somehow by singing God's glory together, we're formed more and more into creatures that live to that glory. Like I mentioned earlier, I used to run track. Now track's interesting. In some sports, you have this clear sense that you need a team around you, right? I mean, even LeBron's got to have somebody that passes him the ball, but, um, but in track, you can buy into this myth that you're just this individual, that you can think that it's all about you. And if you've ever watched track or been a part of a team that does something like that, you see that there's a spirit between an individual runner and the other athletes. The reason for that is that if you want to get good at something, like running, you can't do it in isolation. If you want to grow, you need people around you, people to encourage you, people to challenge you, people to correct you when you're doing something wrong or to show you how to do things better. You might be running the race alone, but you're also running with this whole community of people behind you. And the church is the same way. We can view Christianity as just a kind of individual affair. It's just kind of me and my personal walk with Jesus. 
And you need that, right? You can't be a Christian without that individual personal walk any more than you can be a runner just by kind of hanging out at the practice field. But it is also something deeply communal. Each of us needs each other. We're not designed just to sit in a closet with our Bible and the Spirit and get it all figured out. We're supposed to be taught and admonished by the people around us. You need them. I need them. That this is our team. These are our running mates. At the same time, the church needs each of us. That it needs you. Even if you don't think you're learning anything from the people around you, right? Which is, you'd be wrong, but even if you think that, the people around you need you to share the word and join in worship with them. That every piece of Jesus' body is indispensable, especially your piece. Ultimately, this community, then, this community that's caught together in peace is meant to be a place where Jesus Christ reigns. It is to be a people of peace, shaped by word and worship, where Jesus reigns. This is what Paul means in verse 17. Whatever you do, he says, in word or deed, so everything you do and everything that you say, do it in the name of Jesus. What does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus, right? It doesn't just mean that you pin Jesus' name on it, like the tail on a donkey at a birthday party. It means that you're doing it under Jesus' authority and in keeping with his character, which really gets back to Paul's original picture of Jesus at the beginning of this whole book of Colossians that we discussed back in chapter 1, that Jesus rules everything in the world, in the church, that this age, um, and in this age, it is really meant to be us as this community of faith that is a visible picture of that rule in the world. You hear us described as God's people a lot in scripture, which is borrowing this, it's picturing Old Testament Israel, right? That we are somehow the visible people, nation, tribe of God. And ultimately, that means that we are to reflect his glory back to him, giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus. Paul ends this verse. If Jesus is our king, then God is also the one we exalt. Everything we have is from him, and everything we have is ultimately for him. We're actually going to return to that theme next week, the rule of Jesus over everything. But for now, file away the specifics, and I want to come back to that thing we started with, that that picture visualizing the Christian life and community. Um, When we talk about our need to visualize the Christian life, I think that naturally brings up this other image that Paul often has in his mind. When the Bible talks about God's name, like it does in verse 17, it's thinking about God's reputation among people outside of his people, what they think of him, what they imagine when they imagine God. That's true of the, the, the picture of the image of the body of Christ, too, we, we, we often use it just to stress our unity, but one of the ways Paul uses it in Scripture is as this picture that says Jesus is the head, right, and he's in heaven, and you can't see him, but Jesus is still physically present and visible to the world in the church, in his body. And in some ways, I think that that can be discouraging, right? Certainly, the church has a very long way to go to image Jesus in the world. Though with a scornful wonder, men see her now oppressed, the old hymn has it, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. We all have to own that we can be a pretty poor picture of Jesus in our lives and our lives together. But I think more than that, that Paul means that to be an invitation to imagine. 
right? Go back and take everything he said and just think how a community like that would look in the world. A place of peace, of truth, of praise, a place where everyone serves the people around them and thinks more highly of others than themselves, a place of forgiveness and healing and love. Just imagine the power that that kind of place can have in our world. I mean, we need that kind of place, right? Between the wars in Syria and the wars in our cities and between Orlando nightclubs and Istanbul airports and Baghdad this morning and between shattered families and bitter neighbors and all the bloodshed and cruelty and division that marks this world, people are hungry to see a place that models something different, to have a hope that there could somehow be a place of love and healing and peace. And ultimately, that gives us something to chase. We're not there yet. I am not yet a person of relational virtue, constantly forgiving and ultimately driven by love. I'm really not. We are not yet a people of peace, shaped by word and worship, where Jesus Christ reigns. We're not there. We won't get there in this life, but we can start on that journey together. And isn't that a journey that's worth pursuing, that's worth starting on? That's ultimately what I find so compelling about Paul's picture. I'm not there yet, and I need God's grace and the gospel for all of the ways that I fail. But that is where I and we are headed, and where in glory we will at last finally be brought. I sometimes watch kids shooting hoops or throwing baseballs out in the yard. And most of those kids, they're just kind of whatever. They're just kind of lackadaisical. They look like they're just kind of enduring it until they can, their moms let them come back inside to play video games, right? But every once in a while, you see a kid with this laser focus to their movements and this kind of faraway look in their eyes. And what makes those kids different and means that those kids are the ones that at least have a shot at maybe actually becoming athletes someday isn't just, it's not their drive, it's not that they're even very good at the things that they're practicing right now, but instead it's that they have a vision for what they could be. That kid shooting free throws, he's imagining he's Michael Jordan, right? That it's Cy Young throwing that pitch, not this gangly 10-year-old, at least in his imagination. They've seized this vision for what they could one day be, and it gives them a drive to pursue today. Christianity is the same. We need eyes for the present, absolutely, but the present is not the point. We're not simply called to be, but to become, to fix our gaze on what Christ is making us and to run the race today with that picture as our goal. So let's not think we will arrive tomorrow. Let's not think that Paul's picture is something that's easily realized, but let's chase it all the same. Because being people like that, people like Jesus, and a community that looks like Jesus' body, that is a picture worth pursuing. It's worth it. Would you pray with me? God and Father, man, I think about these words and I, I recognize how far short of them I fall this morning. I thank you for your grace and forgiveness and confess that fact. But Jesus... Just be growing me and be growing us more and more into these people. People of love, people of peace, people rooted in your word and lifting up hands in praise to your glory.
pray all of these things in the name of our exalted Son, or of your exalted Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.